This is the Education Gadfly Show. You were one of the mean girls. That's why you liked it. I was not. It was based on my high school, though. <laughs> Fun chat. What does Gadfly say? Hey, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please join me in welcoming our special guest for this week. Zahava Stadler and Matthew Joseph, welcome to the show. Hello, hello. Hey, hey. Great to be here. Zahava is the Special Assistant for State Funding and Policy at the Education Trust, and Matthew is at Excel and Ed, where he's the Policy Director for Education Funding. Whew. Also joining us, as always, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Good to be here. Very good. Well, hey, we are excited to have you on, Zahava and Matthew. You know, I was just saying before the show that we're doing our part here to usher in the new spirit of bipartisanship, cross-ideological work that President-elect Biden has called on us all to be a part of. So we're excited about that. You know, there was a time not so long ago when education reform was quite bipartisan, and it would be nice to have more of that back. So uh, we are excited. And in particular, we're going to talk about education funding, where Excel and Ed and Education Trust have been involved in trying to promulgate some principles for states on how they can protect education funding, protect schools, and especially protect disadvantaged kids during what is likely to be a very difficult time financially. So let's do that in Ed Reform Update. Okay, guys, so tell us what what you're trying to do here. Did did I get that about right, that uh, this is advice for states as they are likely to face some difficult financial challenges in the months ahead? Absolutely right. I think our concern at Excel and Ed was that in the past, when states have faced a challenge like this, they've oftentimes waited, put their head in the sand, and made decisions that actually magnified the harm to students. So we thought state policymakers need some general ideas, some general guidelines to help them avoid those mistakes, to be prepared and thoughtful for the possibility of financial crunches that are coming up. And we co-developed some broad principles with a whole bunch of organizations. We also sought advice from a lot of organizations like EdTrust, who are real incredible experts on equity. And the big goal was to help states be prepared and thoughtful. And if they do have to make cuts, make sure that they're equitable, that they're student-centered and they're strategic, and that they therefore reduce the harm that could happen to students otherwise. We should start by saying, right, Zahava, that of course, we are hoping uh, that the federal government may step up and provide critical relief so that states don't have to make those painful cuts. I mean, fair to say, is that is that the, to, <laughs> at the top of the list right now? Yeah, absolutely. We would love to see the federal government step up and, and support states and support kids in states to a greater extent. Obviously, there's been a little bit of that so far. We'd like to see a lot more. I think it's underappreciated that the federal government can really step up in moments of constraint in ways that states can't, right? Most states have balanced budget requirements during tough times. They don't have a lot of room to go. So federal government has a huge role to play in stepping up to try and help states forestall the need for cuts. I would say there are also places that states could be thinking about raising new revenue. And I'm happy to talk about where are the right places to go to think about additional revenue that could come before cuts. Um, but I think the important thing here, nobody wants to be the first person to put education cuts on the table, but it's important to line up your priorities for a break glass in case of emergency situation where if your state is in a position where cuts need to be made to make sure you're doing them in a way that supports the highest need students. And so that's a really important conversation 
conversation to be ready for. Yeah, so let, let's talk about that because Matthew, that, that is certainly a big part of what you came out with in these principles was around equity. It says, okay, first, if states have to cut, try to cut something other than education. If you have to cut education, do it in a way that to the extent possible protects the neediest kids. And in fact, I believe you point to our home state of Ohio as, as one place that has done that reasonably well. So say, say more about that, Matthew. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great point. I know Zahava might be able to chime in again because Ed Trust really has a lot of, been doing a lot of work on equity. I think the issue is that districts that rely a lot on state funding, for example, are oftentimes property poor districts. They have the least ability to kind of make up for funding cuts by raising their own revenue. And so what states want to do is they want to basically protect the most vulnerable students. And if they did, for example, an across the board cut, everyone's cut 10%. The districts that are getting 90% of their money from the state are really going to suffer the, the, the most and therefore have the hardest time making up. So what Ohio did recently, for example, when the governor had to make cuts, of course, we don't want there to be cuts to happen. But when he had to make cuts, he did the reverse of that. He actually made it so the districts that were property poor that had the most vulnerable students lost the least. And so that's a great model for other states to think about if they are faced with a similar challenge. Yeah. And, and I, you know, we're very proud of Governor DeWine on many fronts right now. That is one of them. And, and by the way, you know, who's the most property poor out there? It's charter schools because <laughs> they have no ability uh, to tax property. They don't have property. And, you know, again, what he did was say, we're going to protect the highest need charter schools and districts. And so they still did take a cut. It was something like 3%, but there were some of those affluent suburban districts where, you know, their state funding cut was much higher. Now, of course, you know, because it's such a small proportion of their overall funding, even they so far haven't uh, taken too much more than a haircut. But if there are bigger cuts going forward, that that's the way to think about it. Zahava, what, what else? You know, from the state perspective, certainly those kinds of strategic decisions are important. Are there other things at the state level that you do from, from the perspective of equity? Yeah, I think that they're, first of all, doing doing a sort of equity audit of where your money's going right now. So you can think about um, making sure that you're protecting the highest need districts, as Matthew was just saying. You could also be thinking about what line items in your education budget are not, um, are not really supportive of students that need a lot of help right now. So sometimes uh, school funding systems have hold harmless provisions, basically holdovers from old systems that are sending money to districts that don't need it under current conditions. That's something to take a look at. Maybe some specific set-asides in your formula that are disproportionately funding wealthier districts. Mm -hmm. So things that sound reasonable, like cost of living adjustments might be code for, we'll send you more state money if you are living in a place with higher home values. Things like that can be sort of counterproductive in situations like that because you're sort of rewarding money with more money. So doing a little bit of an audit about where the spending currently is in your mm -hmm. state fund system and is it going to the most high leverage places? Are you doing the best you can with the limited money you have? That's a really important first step for states to take. Awesome. David, get in here. Yeah, I guess I just have more questions about sort of how we prioritize things. One thought I was having was whether, you know, K-12 and higher ed are in competition with each other or not here. I guess my personal opinion is that as much as I care about higher ed, I... <laughs> I would rather cut there than I would third grade reading. And so I'm curious to know to what extent you, you all feel like they are in competition and governors and, and legislators are, are likely to, to dip into the higher ed pot. 
And then another question I had is just construction, right? I mean, it seems like there are some things that we are very expensive that we could potentially delay. And I don't know if there's any way, again, I feel like maybe those are separate pipes, but if there's any way we can take some of the money that we're, we would spend on, say, a new school building and just wait a couple of years. I mean, I, I, these seem like common sense things, but I know that when it comes to budgeting, they may be different pots of money. Well, I think, you know, it's our first principle is you should avoid K-12 funding cuts because it's so important for a state. It's oftentimes one of the only things in the state constitution. It has all kinds of economic and other implications for a state. So for us, you know, prioritizing K-12, to we're not saying like what should be cut because of that, but we're just saying K to 12 is in a special category in most states and therefore it should be prioritized. And definitely in our principles, you know, is the notion that states need to be strategic and think about what can they do to tap into rainy day funds and delay other expenses to help districts weather the storm because it is going to be a multiple year storm that, that states and districts are facing. And if they delay some things or, or at least don't harm things. Like for example, some districts are actually going ahead and increasing their expenditures, doing things that are going to make it so when the hurricane hits them in a year, it's going to be even more devastating to them because they haven't thought ahead and decided to defer expenses or at least not increase them. So it's in the principles that states really need to provide cover to districts who want to take some of the painful decisions they need to make now, they're going to avoid the greater pain down the road. And that's one of the reasons why we co-developed these with organizations like the District Management Council and Edgenomics, which is Margaret Rosa, Aspen, and TNTP that have expertise at the district level because state policymakers can't think about the fact that the money is actually going to go down to the students regardless of what they do. They have to realize that they are sending the money to the districts. The districts will decide how to spend it. If they cut the money to the districts, they do have to worry about what will the districts do? Will they pass it on in an inequitable way? Will they make poor strategic decisions? So we do encourage in the principles that states think really hard about how can they provide cover, guidance, even directives to the districts to help make sure that their, their funding cuts are equitable and strategic. All right. Very good. One last thing I want to focus on is this question of how to make sure that union contracts that are in place in so many districts are not used in such a way that end up hurting kids. So in other words, to say it more clearly, 10 years ago with the Great Recession, there seemed to be a lot of evidence that as we could predict, many districts uh, responded to the cuts by simply laying off their most junior teachers, which uh, is, is a terrible strategy for so many reasons. One is that some of those teachers might have been very good and, and could have been helping their kids. Second thing, is you have to end up laying off a whole lot of new teachers uh, in order to have an impact because you're not paying them very much to begin with. And so it just doesn't make a ton of sense, but that is what's in a lot of uh, teacher union contracts around the country. So is there anything that we can be doing about this? Uh, and especially we could kind of wish that we wish we could snap our fingers and change these contracts, but given where we are right now, is there anything states can do to try to uh, push districts in a direction where they don't just lay off the, all of their you know, first and second year teachers? Absolutely. And it's, again, it's, it's in these principles that, that states really need to think really hard. Some states do require that seniority be the only factor or the main factor if a district has to have a reduction in force. So those states can definitely remove those and give districts the flexibility, at least temporarily, to make the decisions that they feel are going to do the least harm to their students. And that's a basic concept in these principles, that if a state 
is going to provide less money, they should lift up the flexibility that districts have to remove some of the shackles, whether it's how they have to lay off people or even a lot of the rules about like staffing and other structures, which aren't even really relevant in the COVID era, but are still there in statute. Are they're really like impinging upon the ability of districts to do what they need to do. There's all kinds of like creative ways that districts can do their staffing. They can bring college students to tutor. There's just a lot of ideas out there that unfortunately right now are kind of barred by state policy or they're at least not incentivized. And so states really can remove those, those shackles and they can use their, their bully pulpit to tell districts, this is the best way that you can do, that you, you should have the flexibility. Do not harm the vulnerable students by laying off 50% of the teachers in those schools. Oftentimes those are teachers of color. They were the most recently hired. So the harm to students would be much greater under those scenarios if the state decides to stay silent. And I just want to echo the concern for teacher diversity in this moment. I think that it's important. We all say that budgets are statements of priorities. Um, and I think that in a moment where communities of color are being especially hard hit uh, by the COVID crisis, that it's important to ensure that, that students are continuing to be supported, Students in that, that students of color are continuing to be supported in their communities, and that we're considering both the vulnerability of students in high-need communities in terms of overall district budgets and in terms of the support and role models they have in their classrooms and how these policies shake out for those students. Very well said. We're going to have to leave it there, but uh, great conversation. I, I should ask, uh, Matthew, if people want to see these principles, where do they find them? They can find them on the Excel and Ed website, and not only will they find the principles, but they will shortly find like a diagnostic tool if states really want to get into the principles, figure out which ones most apply to them. There's a series of yes, no questions that help kind of tell them, well, this one they're doing great on, this one they could do a little bit of work on, um, but it's on the Excel and Ed website. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you again, Zahava Stadler from Education Trust, Matthew Joseph from Excel and Ed. Hope you'll come back sometime soon. But now it is time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research minute. Victoria McDougald, welcome back to the show. Hey Mike, hey David, it's good to be back. It's been a while. Victoria stepping in for Amber. Thank you for doing so. Yeah. So, you know, I have to say, Victoria, you and David, whenever I find myself saying to people, which I do all the time, people say, how's it going with Zoom school and the pandemic and having kids? And I say, well, I'm just glad I don't have anybody in high school who's missing out on their high school experiences or any, you know, tiny children to take care of during a quarantine, like you and David are both getting to do. Of course, David, you've only got one baby. I am a tiny child. Oh, yeah. No, (laughs) I actually think we're pretty lucky, Mike. Victoria may feel differently, but, you know, we're probably going to drop off the face of the earth anyway. And I'm not sure James has any idea what's going on, to be honest. (laughs) Well, no. The last thing is we don't have to do the Zoom school. We don't have to help with schoolwork. I would say the first six months with a six-month-old and a and a half year old tornado were bananas. It was crazy. <laughs> Glad I got some work done. And the key point here is interestingly enough, the two and a half year old does get to go to daycare. Right. Yes. Well, now they're both back at their daycare. Yeah, they're both back at daycare, which you know is interesting. And my children are not back at school. It's It's never quite made a lot of sense unless you understand the politics of K through twelve education versus the politics of early child care uh, in this country. But that's not what we're here to talk about today. We're here to talk about something else. What is that, Victoria? <laughs> 
What you got? Thank you. So today's research minute is on, on a new working paper. It is the effects of absenteeism on cognitive and social emotional outcomes. Basically lessons for COVID, looking at data pre-COVID. Um, and I thought this paper was great because it hits on a really timely and widespread issue in our country right now, which we all know is very high absenteeism rates in schools since COVID initially forced the closures back in March. And it's not a small number of kids that are missing. I think a recent bellwether analysis found that as many as 3 million students have been missing and absent since March. And another Ed Week survey of teachers, I think, in the spring found that like one in four students were chronically absent. So it's a lot. And I think we all know that these numbers probably disproportionately comprise more at-risk students, students from low-income families, English learners, um, and students with disabilities. So it's an important topic, very timely. And the paper in a nutshell, the researchers from the University of California are exploring the effects of absenteeism on both academic and social emotional development. I think the latter is kind of a more unique contribution. You know, prior research pretty much tells us that when kids are absent, they have negative impacts on their learning. But the social emotional piece was interesting. So they used administrative data from six large districts in California to estimate the impact of absenteeism on student outcomes. Um, they analyzed attendance data from 2014 to 2018 for students in grades three through 12. So a pretty large span of grades over four years. And then they assessed, they assessed the impact of absenteeism on test scores. So smarter balance than for California kids. Um, in math and English language arts, and on social emotional learning outcomes. And that data came from student surveys that measured various social and emotional learning constructs, including like growth mindset and social awareness and self-efficacy. And then they compared those outcomes to the days students were absent. And another interesting thing about the study is that they had quite a lot of data available on the students. So they had the grade they were enrolled in, the days attended, race and ethnicity, gender, free and reduced price lunch, qualification, English learner, disability status. And then they also had suspension and expulsion data. In terms of methods, David, you can give your thoughts on this, but they used a student fixed effects model to control for unobserved factors. I think that's the model where they use each student as their own control. <laughs> But they were not able to control for teacher or subject specific effects. So like if somebody hates math or they have a really crappy teacher and they don't go to school, those effects on absenteeism. Anyway, it will probably come as no surprise that absences have a clear negative effect on test scores. But it is interesting that they found wide variation in absenteeism impacts by grade, subject matter, and subgroup. And specifically, I think absenteeism affected students' math performance more than English. And they also found that the negative academic effects were larger in middle school than in elementary grade and were more pronounced for certain subsets of students, those who qualify for free and reduced price lunch, students with disabilities, and homeless students. Students. Interestingly, not English learners. Some other tidbits on average students in grades K through 12 are absent from school on average seven days um, in a regular school year, a little less in middle school and a little bit more for kindergartners and high schoolers. And then absenteeism rates also varied by subgroup, African-American students and students with disabilities, English learners and homeless students were absent more often than their peers. For social emotional outcomes, they found that absences also negatively affected students' SEL development, all of the four constructs measured by the survey data. And they particularly found negative effects for middle schoolers and specifically around social awareness and self-efficacy skills, I think it was. I thought that finding was interesting because so many people say that they didn't like their middle school years. I personally love middle school, but it turns out that middle school is important for social emotional development. You were one of the mean girls. That's why you liked it. I was not. 
it was based on my high school though, Mean Girls. <laughs> Anyway, um, yeah, those are the outcomes. I think. That, that was not your strongest argument there, Victoria. <laughs> yes. It's true. Wow. This book was based on my high school. Anyway, yeah, that's a study. That's the findings. Um, it wasn't nationally representative. And I think the SEL data obviously came from self-reported surveys. But I think it's interesting. It really raises some red flags, you know, about the possible effects of student absences during the pandemic. You know, these negative effects they determined were just from seven days on average. And here we have some students who've been out of school for eight months. So we're able to unpack SEL at all. I mean, that's a real broad term. So were there particular things that they found a bigger effect on dimensions of SEL? How are they defining it? They did. Yeah. And they looked at that by the various subsets of students and by the various SEL constructs that were in the survey. They have some like nuanced findings in there. Different things were more or less affected by grade and student subset. I think social awareness, for example, was like a big one that mm-hmm. took a hit if kids were absent a lot in high school. So, you know, I noticed how you directed your comments about the methodology to David. (laughs) I understand that you, you know, however, Victoria, you have not not been doing the research minute for a long time. You may not understand how much uh, value added student level growth I have made. Very good, Mike. Just, Just by listening to Amber and David, you have her on about this stuff. Okay, great. So now we're implicated in whatever comes next. <laughs> Take it away, Mike. No, no, no. Look, I think it's I, I think it is interesting to to use the student as their control. You know that makes sense because of course it's not like kids are randomly assigned the ability or the decision or the option to be chronically absent. It it does make me wonder, like you know. These negative outcomes, of course, you know, we, we find these negative outcomes, right? But is it literally because they're not at school or is it because of what might be going on in their life that is also causing them to miss school, right? That there's a crisis at home, that they're having a mental health crisis, that they're, you know, sick, that they're moving apartments yet again. I mean, whatever those things are, right? I mean, it's sort of hard to untangle. You know, not that, again, it, I mean, it's, it's all bad. And, and certainly the message to schools at all, any case should be do whatever you can to keep kids in school and find out if kids aren't showing up, you know, what happens? What are your systems to go out and find them, give the social supports to get them back uh, into school? But it does matter with the pandemic to some degree, right? You know, in terms of how much of, of the negativity is because they literally aren't getting the benefit of being at school versus, you know, whatever else is going on in their home. Good job, was, Mike. That, was that reasonable, David? That was that was reasonable, Mike. I, I do worry about its shocks, like you said, right? Even if you're controlling for the students' sort of past responses to the survey, you know, if something happens in your life, you're going to, and someone asks you, I don't know, how positively you're feeling towards other people, or you're, you're going to answer differently. I might answer differently in the morning versus the afternoon or before or after lunch. So it is the sort of thing that could be sensitive to that. And Right. I mean, the word we would use is reverse causality, right? The word, the worry is that kids are missing school because, you know, they're feeling these, they're having these feelings or um, these things are going on in their lives. Or it could also be, I guess, just something else is happening that's driving both of these things. So I guess to jump to the policy relevant part, right? I mean, how terrified should we be for the next generation of kids? I have no idea. Mike, what do you think? (laughs) I guess I should say, I mean, I know some very nice homeschooled people. So simply being out of school doesn't necessarily mean that you can't be socio-emotionally, you know, capable, obviously. Um, But at the same time, you know, in the past, that was a choice. 
Whereas now it's something that's being more or less forced upon people by circumstances. People aren't sort of jumping up and down and saying, I'm so excited that my kid gets to be out of school and I get to spend all day with them uh, so I can you know, cultivate their personality, their personal growth. Yeah. That's not what's going on, unfortunately. So well, I yes, do worry well. a little. And look, I mean, we should certainly always think of of young people as resilient, you know, and, and they are. And I think the closer we are to actual kids, you know, that's the message we want to send is, you know, we will bounce back from this as hard as it is. But step back and put on your policymaker hat or your researcher hat on. And yeah, like it, this is this is going to be horrendous. You know, we know from other uh, times when kids have been out of school for long periods because of natural disasters or strikes or whatever, uh, you can see the effects for basically their entire lifetime. You know, that said, th th this also comes with the pandemic, right? That these kids didn't just experience not being at school, but a lot of kids also experienced some pretty horrific stuff uh, in terms of their friends and family being hit by healthcare crisis, by family being out of work. It's just like a double trippy, triple whammy, you know, but, but look, I'm sure, you know, people who went through the great depression, they wish they hadn't gone through the great depression, but it also built uh, some, some skills and resiliencies uh, that helped them go on and do some amazing things in their life. So I'm trying to look at the bright side here, David. I and hope. <laughs> you're trying real hard. Yeah, 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 I'm worried because I feel like, will we ever get some of these kids back in school? I mean, research isn't great that if high school kids drop out, that they are going to re-enroll or graduate, you know? And I think people are pretty aware now that social-emotional skills are pretty closely tied to academic, you know, proficiency and learning. So schools and educators really have a big task ahead of them this year and next year. And I think a lot of them are stepping up to the plate and trying to figure out how can they focus on students' mental health in addition to the academic lost time, I should say, not lost learning, but lost time, um, make up for that lost time. They deserve a lot of respect because it's a big, big challenge, even for the kids that are, you know, showing up or coming into Zoom and things like that. All right. They, they do indeed deserve that respect. Okay. That is all the time that we've got though. So we'll leave it there. Thanks Victoria for being on the show. Don't be such a stranger. Come back sometime soon. <laughs> all right. My kids are back in daycare. I'll come back again soon. I promise. All right. Until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.